if you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. As Ryan mentioned earlier, uh, today is Pentecost Sunday, and I know many of you might be familiar with uh, Christmas, which of course celebrates the birth of Christ, and then of course Easter celebrates the resurrection of Christ, and Pentecost is a holiday on the church calendar that celebrates the giving of God's Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And so uh, this morning, in light of that, we're going to be taking a break from our series that we've been in called God and Sexuality, and we're going to be spending a little bit of time in Acts chapter 8. So Acts chapter 8, if you've turned there, and uh, let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we give you praise and thanks this morning that in your goodness and love, even as we just sang, you have not left us behind, but you have pursued us, and you have sent your Son into this world to rescue us from sin and death and darkness. And you, would get, you have given us your spirit so that we might not be alone, so that we might know power to bear witness to your son Jesus in this world. And we pray that as we open up our Bibles, that you might open up our hearts and that you would speak and that you would make us attentive to your voice and that in intending to your voice, that you would change us today. And we ask this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. amen. So, like many of you, I grew up in the Los Angeles area, and you know, one of the benefits of growing up in the LA area is that from time to time, you actually have celebrity sightings. And so, anybody here have a celebrity sighting in your years in LA? And sometimes you even have an opportunity to go up and meet the celebrity, talk to them, even get a picture with them. Well, uh, a while back, I was in Hollywood, and I actually ran into this celebrity, uh, this is Prince, or the artist formerly known as Prince. Ran into Prince actually down in Hollywood in, in a building called the Hollywood Wax Museum. <laughs> and of all of the wax dummies that are in there, uh, Prince was the most lifelike and actually the coolest of all of uh, the, the, the celebrities in the Wax Museum. Anybody here been to the Wax Museum? If you have not been, you can skip it. I mean, I tell you, you can just skip it. It is not that impressive. You know, but as I was in the Wax Museum, I was kind of thinking about how um, there, there's some correlation, I think, between how some people experience the Wax Museum and how a lot of people experience church. You see, sometimes we come to church and there are symbols of Jesus. In our case, we've got stained glass, uh, glass pieces all around us that point to Jesus. Uh, we've got a cross in the center of our stage that points us to Jesus. But a lot of us think that the symbols around us, the book that we hold in our hands, points us merely back to somebody who lived in history. When actually, when we gather together in church, we gather in the very presence of the true and living God. God is not far off, he is not distant, he is near to us. God is closer to you this morning than the person who is sitting next to you. And this morning on Pentecost, we celebrate the great gift of God, of his Holy Spirit. 
And the Holy Spirit, according to Scripture, is the very personal presence of God. There's lots of metaphors and images in the Bible that capture who the Holy Spirit is and what the Spirit is about. And one of the most common metaphor is the metaphor of wind. Because wind, like God, is unseen. And yet wind is a powerful force that can actually move the entire ocean. Uh, wind can move boats across the ocean. Wind can disturb us and shake us up, and yet we cannot see it. And this is like God, when His presence comes among us, He is powerful, He is a force that moves us, and yet He is unseen. And even this morning as we gather, the powerful, life-giving presence of God is among us to move us and to transform us. In fact, uh, on Pentecost, it doesn't just celebrate the giving of the Holy Spirit to the church. On Pentecost, we celebrate how God's Spirit empowers the church. He was given to the church in order to send us out on mission. There's a great question that stands at the heart of Christianity, and it it stands at at really the heart of, of the emergence of Christianity. And that's how is it that Christianity moved from this very localized religion in a very specific part of the world to become the largest global force that has transformed the globe in the history of the world. You know, we could put it like this. Uh, You know, prior to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Christianity, and before that, Judaism, was limited to this little strip of land in the Middle East. And the very focal point, the very center of that land was Jerusalem. And at the very center of Jerusalem was the temple. And this was the place that was the very center of God's work in the world, and it was kind of limited to this space. But then after the day of Pentecost, something happens. There is a movement that goes out to every tribe and nation and people and tongue, and it changes everything, and it's the movement of the church. And the question is raised, what what was it? What was the force? What was the power that transformed a small band of disciples who were fearful and terrified and who just weeks before denied Jesus before a little girl? You know, what was it that transformed this small group of disciples into a force that changed the world? And the answer is, is that God himself came among the church. He empowered the church to move the church out on mission. And the power of the Holy Spirit that was poured out on the day of Pentecost is with us still, moving us, transforming us, calling us to to go out and to be transformative agents, bearing witness to Jesus in our world. Now, this morning, what I want to do is I want to look together at a little passage of Scripture that really gives us a window into what God is about in the world what God is about by His Holy Spirit, and it comes to us in Acts chapter 8. Now, let's just set it in its context. So, in the early portion of the book of Acts, Jesus, right before He ascends to the Father's right hand, uh, 50 days after He was crucified and raised from the dead, He gathers His disciples, and He says this. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, up to this point in the book of Acts, where we get to in chapter 8, the gospel has traveled throughout Jerusalem. It's gone a bit out into Judea and Samaria. But now when we reach chapter 8, it's swinging open a a new door in the work of God in the world. Now the gospel is going to start traveling out to all of the peoples of the earth. 
And what I want us to see this morning is this fascinating story of the very first person who is out in the ends of the earth that the gospel comes to. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's a story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And so let's together, let's, let's talk together about this Ethiopian eunuch and how the gospel travels to him. Look at your Bibles, Acts chapter 8, verse 26. It says this, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he arose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now stop there. Let's talk a little bit about uh, this Ethiopian eunuch. Notice first he is Ethiopian. Uh, It's interesting, in the imagination of the average person in the Greco-Roman world, in the Jewish world, the very ends of the earth was Ethiopia. It was outside of what they considered normal civilization, the Greco-Roman Empire. It was beyond the boundaries of this empire. It was out to the very furthest reaches of the earth, the very ends of the earth, as Homer describes it actually in the Iliad. He describes Ethiopia as as the farthest of the inhabited lands. And so as the gospel goes out, it doesn't just go out just beyond Judea and Samaria and just into Asia Meyer and just into kind of the Roman world. It goes out beyond that all the way to the very edges of the then known world to this Ethiopian eunuch. Now, it says he's not just an Ethiopian, but there's kind of this complex picture of this guy. Because on the one hand, it says that he was in charge of all of Candace's treasury. And so within Ethiopia, you know, the queen was Candace, or it was actually a title for the queen, uh, and, and she had this huge, massive empire. And so this guy is something of a CFO in the empire. And so he has power, he has some uh, prestige, he has some authority, he has access to wealth. And so on the one hand, you know, he's kind of a, a prominent figure, but on the other hand, it says that he was a eunuch. He was a eunuch. Now, for, for years, when I heard the story, when I read about a eunuch, I just thought that a eunuch was somebody who was maybe single and celibate. It was just another word they used to describe somebody like that. I didn't really think much about the term. And then, uh, not long ago, I did some research on eunuchs in the ancient world. Uh, it turns out that a eunuch in the ancient world was not just somebody who was single or celibate, they were somebody who had been castrated and maybe dismembered. Now, according to kind of the ancient sources, when you study about this in the ancient world, something fascinating kind of emerges, and that's that very often in royal courts, when they had a servant that, that showed promise and that they were grooming for leadership within the empire, you know, they were sharp, they had intellect, uh, oftentimes when they were 12 years old, they would have them castrated. And why would they do this? Well, because castration would change them hormonally, uh, they would become more effeminate, they wouldn't grow facial hair, they would be the closest thing to a transgender person in the ancient world, and they did this because the person who was in the royal court had access to the harem of the king. 
And they didn't want the, the person who had highest power and authority and had access in there to, to you know, mess with the king's harem. And so they would have them castrated. It was a brutal culture, brutal society, castrated, maybe dismembered. And so get this, when the gospel starts to go out beyond the boundaries of Jerusalem and Judea and the kind of religious world that worshiped the God of Israel, note well the first person who it travels to. It's an Ethiopian, somebody who is way out on the very edges of civilization, somebody who is uh, the, the closest thing to a transgendered person in the ancient world, and it goes all the way out to this person. Now, what's interesting is it says in our text that he was traveling from Egypt or from, uh, yeah, from, 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 from um, Ethiopia all the way to Jerusalem. Now, question class, why is it that he is traveling from Ethiopia all the way to Jerusalem? I mean, this was a 1,500-mile journey. He, he took this journey not with roads and not in an airplane, but on a chariot with a horse. Anybody here ever ridden in a horse and a buggy? I can remember growing up, being at Knott's Berry Farm and seeing, you know, the, the uh, you know what I'm talking about, Knott's Berry Farm, they have like the coach that rides around. Yeah, the, and, uh, you know, always as a little kid wanting to ride in that thing, and I'm quite certain that I would have enjoyed riding in that thing for about 15 minutes, and then I'd be done. But here's a guy who took a four to six month journey across barren deserts under the threat of windstorms and sandstorms and bandits. And he's traveling all the way to Jerusalem. Why is an Ethiopian eunuch traveling to Jerusalem? Well, it's not because he's on business. He's not doing politic. He is going to Jerusalem, the text tells us, to worship. And why is he going to worship? Well, it has to be that he is spiritually thirsty. He is spiritually hungry. Why else would you take a 1,500, six-month-long journey across a barren desert with a horse unless you were insatiably thirsty? You know, he had power and prestige, but the power and prestige had not satiated his spiritual thirst. There were other religious options in Ethiopia. He didn't need to go to Jerusalem, and yet those other religious options were not satiating his thirst. He knew some things. He definitely was a skilled individual. He was put in, in, in a prominent place, and yet all of his skills, all of his knowledge still didn't satiate his hunger for God. And so he takes this long journey across a barren desert under all kinds of threats to get to Jerusalem so that he might worship the God of Israel. But when he arrives, it's something of a minor tragedy. Because when he gets there, he learns that he can't actually go into the temple and worship. Why? Well, listen, the people in ancient Israel knew what a lot of people in America just don't get, and that is that the God of Israel, the creator of all things, is holy. He is transcendently holy. 
And you just can't saunter into the presence of God at any old time you want. No, you had to go through all the prescribed rituals and all of the cleansings. And, and there, were, there were numerous things that could temporarily exclude you and disqualify you from going to worship at the temple. And so, for example, if you had mold in your house, it would disqualify you from worshiping at the temple. If you had touched a dead body, it would disqualify you from worshiping at the temple. If... If, if you had a bodily discharge, it would disqualify you from worshiping at the temple temporarily. But then there were some things that would disqualify you forever. And one of the things, according to Deuteronomy chapter 23, that would exclude you, it would disqualify you from worshiping at the temple is if you were a eunuch. If you had been sexually altered, you know, within ancient Israel, the primary call on humanity, the primary call on Israel was to be a fruitful nation, was to go out and to be fertile and bear lots and lots of kids, and this was God's promise to the nation. And so something in that made them believe that the person who was sexually altered couldn't go worship at the temple. And so can you imagine this guy? I mean, put yourself in his sandals for a moment. You have traveled risking your life across barren deserts to get into the presence of this God. You had heard something of him from the little communities of Jews that had at one point traveled all the way out to Ethiopia, and you had heard something about this God of Israel, and so you go to worship at the temple, and you get there, and you can't get in. I mean, how depressed would you be? How disappointed and no doubt it made him feel unclean and unworthy, like he was not good enough to get in to worship this God. And so discouraged, disheartened, he gets back into his chariot and he starts his journey back. But his trip to Jerusalem wasn't all a loss because while he was there, he picked up one of the ancient scrolls that were hard to get and very expensive. And it contained uh, the, the prophecies of Isaiah. And so no doubt, I, in my imagination, I, I just imagine him sitting on, on, his, on his, you know, in his, in his chariot, you know, he's cruising back, he's disappointed, he's, he's thinking in his mind, God, do you want me? God, am I good enough? God, am I, am I just unclean? Am I forever excluded from your presence? God, God, am I good enough? Can I, can I be acceptable to you? And as he's kind of thinking this and he's pouring over this ancient scroll, out of the corner of his eye, there's this guy who starts running next to the chariot. And he says, pardon me, pardon me. Are you reading your Bible? <laughs> and, you know, the guy probably stops the chariot and he says, what is happening here? Look at what the, look at what the Bible says. It says, and the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. And so Philip ran to him, and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and he asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless somebody guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. He is reading from Isaiah chapter 53. Now, people who are in the knowledge of the Bible will say, oh, 
oh, how serendipitous. How providential of all of the passages in the Bible that point to Jesus, this above all of the Old Testament prophets is most clear. Now, why is it that he was reading from Isaiah 53? Now, get this, listen very carefully. I think the reason why he's reading from Isaiah 53 is because just a few paragraphs down, there are some paragraphs, some of the unique and only paragraphs in all of the prophetic literature and all of the Old Testament that speak positively about, guess who? Eunuchs and foreigners. In fact, um, it says this in Isaiah chapter 56, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. This had to have been what he was saying. The Lord has separated me from his people. I can't go in the temple. And yet this prophecy says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm just a dry tree. I will never have children. I will never have uh, those who receive my inheritance. I will not have a name that goes on generation after generation because that's what happened in the ancient world. He says, let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name that is better than sons and and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, then they shall not be cut off. And it goes on. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, these I will bring to my holy mountain, which is Jerusalem, and make them joyful in my house of prayer, which is the temple. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those I have already gathered. Do you see why he is spending time in this section of scripture? And yet he's confused. He says, look, there's this promise that foreigners will not be shut out, that eunuchs will have a better name, that eunuchs can actually go in to God's house and offer their sacrifices. And he's asking, how can those who are excluded be brought in? And he's asking this question. And then he, he finds his eyes resting on this passage where it talks about another person who is cut off, who is excluded, who is denied justice. And he's like, who is this guy? This person was even like a sheep. He was led to the slaughter like a, a lamb before it shears the silence. So he opened not his mouth. His life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch says to Philip, he's like, who is this guy? Who, who is he talking about? And listen to what it says. And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about who? Jesus. And in my imagination, I just, I just, I hear him saying, oh, you have no idea. You want to know how it is that eunuchs that those who, who, who are far outside the boundaries of what's considered normal in Israel, that are far outside the boundaries of even the Greco-Roman civilized world, you want to know how those people who are formally excluded can be brought in. 
And Philip said, God himself came among us and he became one who was excluded. He became one who was cut off. He became one who was an outcast so that all of the outcasts, so that all those who are excluded, so that all those who are cut off can be brought in and given a name forever and be made a child of God. And the eunuch hears this and look at his response. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water, what prevents me from being baptized? Philip said, look, you want to be brought in, you want to be able to enter God's presence. It's not in the temple in Jerusalem, it is through this Jesus who is cast off so that you might be brought in. He says, repent, believe, put your trust in Jesus and then express your commitment to him through baptism. And he hears this and he's like, I want to get baptized. Listen, baptism in the ancient world was a sign that said you are a full member of God's family. It was like when I got my ring on my wedding day, the ring is an external sign that says I belong to another. And he asked the question, what prevents me from getting baptized? Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, would anything prevent me from being brought into the family of God? Do you know what's happened to my body? Do you know what everyone around me thinks about me? And, and, and Philip says, yes, stop the chariot, go down to the river, let's baptize you. And he's baptized. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing because the one who was formerly cast out had been brought in and made a full member of the covenant people of God. Now, do you see what this passage is teaching us? Do you see what it's saying? I mean, in our story, the gospel now, for the very first time in human history, is traveling outside of what was normal religious life, out of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and now it's starting to travel to the uttermost parts of the earth, and you see the very first person who receives this message and is transformed by it. When the gospel goes out, It doesn't just go out to what was normal society and what was normal sexuality. It it, it goes way out beyond that to somebody who has radically been altered and is broken and was considered outside. And do you know what this means? It means that there is a wideness to God's mercy. There is a wideness to God's mercy. You know, the old hymn says, there is a wideness to God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. For the love of God is broader than the measure of our mind and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. There is a wideness to God's mercy. And let me just ask you, have you made it too narrow? A while back, I was sitting in a coffee house and I was studying uh, the text of scripture. Um, the harvest, or, or the, yeah, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
And I was sitting in this coffee house. It was kind of artsy and all this stuff. And there was all kinds of these um, odd-looking people. It was in Albuquerque, kind of like in a more grunge part of Albuquerque. And I, I was studying my, my Bible, and I looked up, and there was this guy sitting in front of me, and his back of his head was to me, and there were eyes tattooed on the back of his head. <laughs> Greg, I think you should do that. And I remember thinking in my mind, like, what, <laughs> what, you know, eyes in the back of your head, what, you know, and, and, and I was kind of thinking in my mind, like, wow, you know, and I'm studying this, this text, and then that, that phrase hit me, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And in my mind, I thought, this guy probably has no interest in it, this is not for him. And yet I felt God spoke to me in that moment, look, the harvest is plentiful, There are all kinds of people who you would never expect are spiritually hungry and yet you scratch below the surface and there is spiritual thirst and spiritual hunger. You know, a study went out a while back uh, by uh, a guy named Tom Rayner and he studied a bunch of uh, non-church people as well as church people and he asked the question to the unchurched people, how many of you, if you were invited to church by a Christian friend, would respond favorably? 82% said they would. He asked the same question to Christians. How many of you have invited a non-Christian friend to church in the last six months? 2% had. Now, why is that? Now, it might be because we are uh, hard-hearted and we just don't care about people, but that's not really my experience of most of you all. I think the reason why we don't ask our friends to to come to church with us is because we just don't really think they're spiritually thirsty. They seem to have money. They seem to have affluence. uh, They seem to have, you know, their life put together. Maybe they've got some some prestige. Maybe they've got some position. They know some stuff. And we think, well, they, they probably aren't interested. But why wouldn't they be interested? Why wouldn't they be spiritually hungry? Many of you are spiritually hungry and you realize that you're a broken mess, and you have found healing in Jesus. I mean, that's why I'm a Christian. I'm not a Christian because I got everything figured out. I'm a Christian because I'm a train wreck, and I need the mercy and grace of God in my life every day of the week. And on your best days, you know that's true about yourself too, amen? Amen. And if that's true for you, don't you realize there are people around you who are sensing their own need? They, 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 maybe they look good on the outside, but there's something deep going on beneath the surface. There is a wideness to God's mercy. Have you made it too narrow? But you know, sometimes we make the gospel too narrow because our own hearts are too narrow. I remember a while back, uh, we had a bunch of flies going on in the backyard. It's probably because I have a dog. I don't think cats attract flies, do they? And I was talking to my brother, and he told me about this really sweet uh, electronic uh, fly swatter that he picked up at Walmart. And so he said, you just go, and you hold this thing out, and the flies just go right onto it, and it goes, and it kills him. You seen these? You know what I'm talking about? And um, so I, I looked all over the place for one of these, and... Um, I don't like going to Walmart, but I decided I'm going to go to Walmart and get one. So I go to Walmart, I pick one up, and I come home, and the next day, my fly swatter was broken. It turns out you're not supposed to hit the flies with it. I was getting kind of aggressive. You're just, I guess they're just supposed to come, you're just supposed to slowly, you know. Anyway, I broke it. I had to go back to Walmart, return it, get a new fly swatter, 
And I, I don't like going to Walmart, and this was a particularly hot day. I didn't get a lot of good sleep the night before, and I was cranky inside. And I remember walking into Walmart, and I was just filled with this low-grade disdain for humanity. You ever experienced that? The low-grade disdain for humanity, and Walmart is not the right place to go <laughs> when you're experiencing that. And it seemed like I got in the slowest line. It was moving like molasses. And I'm just looking at this incompetent salesperson. I'm looking at all these people. And I'm just filled with self-righteousness and arrogance and disdain. And I felt like God just put on my heart in that moment, I love all of these people. God loves people. God loves people. God loves all kinds of people. God loves liberal people. God loves conservative people. God loves gay people. God loves straight people. God loves black people and white people and brown people and yellow people. God loves all kinds of people. God loves people who voted for somebody different than you in the last election. For God so loved the world. God is not like me. I like people who are like me. But God loves people who are broken. God loves people who have made a mess of their lives. God loves people stuck in their addictions and he wants to free them. And God loves people weighed down by their guilt and he wants to release that burden. God loves people who have lost hope and he wants to give them hope. God loves all kinds of people. There is a wideness to God's mercy. Have you made it too narrow? St. Augustine prayed, my heart is cramped, O Lord. Widen it out. So we see in this story that there is a wideness to God's mercy, but we not only see that. In our story, we see that the God we meet in Jesus is a God who is passionately on a mission to rescue people who are far from him. You see, this is not first a story about a eunuch's search for God, it is a story about God's search for a eunuch. Did you notice in the story, I mean, there's this kind of odd text in the very beginning, it kind of opens up with an angel of the Lord telling Philip to go from a very vibrant, effective ministry in Samaria and to head out to a desert road that was on his way to Gaza. And no doubt he's thinking, why am I going to a desert road? And then he gets to the desert road. And as he's there in the desert road, there's this chariot coming by with an Ethiopian eunuch, the last person on earth that a Jew in the first century would naturally think he should go talk to. And yet the Spirit spoke to him and says, go, and he says, run and catch that chariot. Do you see, this isn't about an Ethiopian search for God. This is not even about an effective evangelist like Philip and his search to get a convert. This is about God's passionate love on pursuit to capture this Ethiopian eunuch who felt utterly like an outcast, excluded and unclean, and to bring him in to God's family. You know, I can remember back when... Um, my wife was pregnant, and, and we, we took these classes called Bradley classes. Anybody here ever had a Bradley class? It's 
uh, husband coach childbirth, you know? I just imagine myself in the, you know, in the hospital room and my wife is in labor, you know, and she's in all this pain and I just walk up and say, honey, don't worry, coach is here. Got it taken, covered. Just look to coach. You know, I feed her ice and, you know, I rub her back and I hold her hands and, and train her to breathe and to push on time. You know, this is, and I remember when we were, uh, when my wife was in labor with our second daughter, Mia, she went through transition, or she went through labor way quicker than she had with Audrey. And while we were still at home, she started to go into transition. And so we're like, we need to get in the car and go to the hospital now. And so we get in the car, and it's, uh, we had this old 1984 Mercedes diesel 300. It was not a turbo diesel, it was just a 300 diesel. And those things are just <laughs> dogs. And, um, and we're driving to the hospital, and we're just trying to gas this thing. It takes like 15 minutes to get going. Once it's going, it's great. But, um, but my, my mother-in-law is driving. I'm in the, 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 the passenger seat. My wife is in the back seat. And she just, Alicia just starts, she's crying out. She's like, I am pushing. My body is pushing. I can't make it stop. And so I hopped in the back. I said, honey, don't worry. Coach is here. I didn't say that. I was absolutely terrified. I hopped in the back. I'm like, please, God, don't let this baby come now, you know. And, and we get to the hospital. We go into the emergency room. Within 15 minutes, Mia has been pushed out. And actually, a, a, um, a, an incredible nurse just walked up to my wife's hand and held her hand. She did everything I was supposed to do, but didn't know how to do <laughs> But I realized in that moment that something bigger than myself was happening, something I could not control. And listen, God is at work in this world and you cannot control it. It is bigger than you. It is not dependent on you. And this is Philip. Philip is just caught up in something God is already doing in this person's life. And so you have got to have confidence that God is at work in this world, that he is drawing people to himself that you can talk to your friends, you can reach out, you can invite them in, you can share this good news. God is on a passionate pursuit of this Ethiopian eunuch. And Philip, or the Ethiopian eunuch, he came to realize God was so passionate, he hadn't just sent Philip to tell him this message. God had sent his son. God in the flesh had come and walked among us. He came to see that God had taken his place as an outcast so that he might be brought in. And you know, if you are here this morning and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, I just want to say this to you. God is inviting you to trust in his son Jesus and experience God's forgiveness and cleansing and be healed. And I would just put to you the question that, that this Ethiopian eunuch raised, what prevents me from getting baptized? He said, I would just ask you, what is preventing you from entrusting your life to Jesus? Now, I know some of you might say, I have doubts. Well, listen, I have doubts. But I'm not 100% sure. What if, what if, what if? Look, there's almost nothing in this world that you can be 100% sure of. I mean, we could all be living in the matrix for we all know. Like there are very few things in life that you can have absolute certitude on before you make a decision. And certainly dealing with matters of faith and your whole life and the most important decisions in your life, like getting married, you will never have absolute certitude on. And yet, you have to make a decision. 
And I will just bear witness to you as somebody who entrusted my life to Jesus when I was young, that Jesus has never let me down. And though I had doubts, though I didn't have certitude, though I've struggled in many different ways over the last few decades, Jesus has never let me down. Jesus has walked by my side and he has been my closest companion and he has upheld me and strengthened me. And I would just invite you, turn your life over to Jesus. Let go of the reins of your life and entrust yourself to him and receive his mercy and his forgiveness into your life.